Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1864, on a midsummer's day, Kawai Koume, a 60-year-old matriarch of a samurai family in Wakayama, makes a note in her diary, in which she had dutifully written in for over three decades. Quote, There are reports of armed clashes in Kyoto. It's said that the emperor has ordered the expulsion of the foreigners, and it's also said that a large band of vagabond soldiers has gathered in Senju in Edo. It's said that in Edo, people are wearing their kimono linings, and in Nikko it has been snowing. I don't know if it's true, but really, every day we hear nothing but disturbing rumors. The Meiji Restoration, which ousts the shogun and restores the emperor's power, happens four years later. Koome's Diary is the central document in Simon Partner's latest book, Koome's World, The Life and Work of a Samurai Woman Before and After the Meiji Restoration, from Columbia University Press. Simon is professor of history at Duke University. He is the author of three previous books that chronicle modern Japanese history, the lives of ordinary people such as farmers, shopkeepers, and housewives, including The Merchant's Tale, Yokohama, and the Transformation of Japan. Today, Simon and I talk about Kawai Koome, her diary, and everything she witnessed in the decades covered by her journal. So, Simon, thank you for coming on the show today. You know, it's probably best to start by asking, you know, who who was Kawai Koome? What place does did she have in Japan's social structure in that in that part in time? Okay. Uh, well, firstly, thanks, Nicholas, very much for inviting me. It's, I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about this. Uh, so Kawai Koome was um, a member of the samurai class. Um, she was born into a hereditary samurai family in the city of Wakayama in Western Japan. Um, uh, and um, she was uh, from a scholarly family. Her family were, uh, had a relatively low on the income scale. Uh, they had a, an annual guaranteed income uh, stipend paid by the domain of 20 koku, which was, uh, koku is a, a a large bale of rice. Uh, so um, it's it, on the whole scale of samurai incomes, it's lower middle class, I guess. Uh, so they were economically somewhat marginal, uh, but they were, her family were members of the scholarly elite of the domain. So they had a relatively high cultural status. The, uh, the men in uh, Koeme's family, in, uh, starting with her grandfather and going down to her son were, uh, teachers in the official domain school for four generations, uh, father to son. Um, and uh, Koome herself was very well educated uh, compared to many other samurai women because of uh, uh, the position and status of her family. Also, uh, since Koome had no uh, brothers of her own, she was effectively the heir to the family name and position. Um, women were not allowed to inherit according to uh, Tokugawa law. So uh, she did so something that was very common in Tokugawa society. Uh, she married uh, uh, somebody who was chosen by her family, actually one of her grandfather's students, who was then adopted into the family and became uh, the heir, heir and uh, head of the family eventually. Um, so although Koume was unable to inherit directly, this position did give her a higher status than the typical bride in a samurai family who would move into her husband's family and, and was often treated like a servant for, for many years after that. 
So Huomei lives during a very eventful time in, in Japanese history. Um, obviously, kind of the central focal point is um, is the Meiji Restoration, hence the, hence the title of the book. Um, but what were some of the major events that Kawame maybe not quite witnesses, but 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 is around for um, during the decades that she's writing her diary? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this was one of the reasons why I was very attracted to uh, Kawame, to writing about Kawame when I discovered her diary. Um, she, uh, yeah, as you said, she, you know, she was a, like a, a, a stay-at-home wife through much of her life. So she was certainly not directly involved in many of the great events of mid-19th century Japanese history, but she was around for some very, very significant events that she recorded extensively in her diary. Um, they include, so the first year of her diary is the year 1837, which was right in the thick of the Temple Famine, one of the worst mm. uh, natural disasters that had struck Japan in, in early modern times. Uh, and she gives some vivid accounts of the suffering caused by the, the, um, the crop failures and the hunger uh, in her own city and, and in uh, nearby cities. Um, and she also writes very vividly of uh, a major insurrection, the Oshio Heihachiro Rebellion that took place in the city of Osaka, which was uh, just a day's walk away from, uh, from her own home. Um, then uh, uh, a couple of decades later, she, she was uh, writing, continuing to write her diary at the time that the, um, that the Commodore Perry's uh, mission, the so-called black ships arrived in Japan in 1853 and forced Japan into a series of very difficult diplomatic negotiations that ultimately led to trade treaties and the opening of Japan to unrestricted trade, which in turn unleashed the very uh, destabilizing series of events that, uh, that uh, ultimately led in 1868 to, uh, to the, the Meiji Restoration. Um, and even beyond that, uh, Koome's diary continues until the early 1880s, albeit with very significant gaps. Uh, out of the possibly 50 years that she kept this journal, um, we don't exactly know when she started, um, but uh, only 17 years survive. So it's, it's uh, only a partial account, but many of these important events are recorded. So in the Meiji era, she writes... Uh, extensively about the Satsuma Rebellion, for example, in the mid 1870s. Um, and, uh, and she's also, of course, writes uh, extensively about the dramatic changes, social and political changes that affected her own family. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not the only thing that's interesting about her diary, but um, it's uh, meaning that, you know, she also writes very, very interestingly about uh, Local, local social structures and so on. So, so there are lots of things that interest me about it, but the, 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 this insight that she gives into sort of how ordinary people in a provincial town witnessed and experienced these very dramatic events uh, is definitely one of the, the very um, appealing aspects of this document and something that I, I certainly tried to include in the, some of the drama in my book. I'd also mention actually, she, in addition to those sort of very well-known um, events. She was also a witness to some, some less perhaps well-known, but also, you know, very, very striking and moving at times events, such as a, a major uh, epidemic of cholera in, uh, in 1859, mm. 
um, and the kind of millenarian movements such as the Eija Naika movement that swept through Japan in the uh, in the 1860s. You know, and 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 she lives in 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 Wakayama, which is I think it was pretty far from the political centers of Japan at the time. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, but what actually kind of was like the, the part of Japan that she lived in? How did that kind of connect to, I guess, first the 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 shogunate and then I guess the post Meiji Empire? Yeah, so thanks. So that that's actually one of the, the other things that really interested me about Kuome was that she was not living in the, you know, in the one of the great political centers such as um, Kyoto or, uh, of course, Edo, the, the shogunal center. Um, um, but but in a provincial city, uh, so I was very interested going into this to see to see exactly the question you just asked. You know, how would have they have been affected by these events, and how did they perceive them compared to you know witnesses in Edo and other major centers? Um, so Wakayama, though, is a you know it's a complicated uh, situation. So geographically, it is fairly remote. I mean, it's uh, several, probably three hundred kilometers from Edo. Uh, you know, very very long uh, walk to to go between one city and the other. Um, and it's um, it's although it's relatively close to Osaka and Kyoto, it's it's out on its own peninsula. Uh, so it's it's very much its own place. I would imagine that the people growing up in in Wakayama actually the the name of the domain was Kishu, uh, uh, named after the key peninsula uh, that Wakayama is located on. Uh, I would guess that their sense of identity really revolved around Kishu domain much more than around some concept like Japan or the shogunate. Um, but having said that, they were also very connected for a variety of reasons. So one was that the um, the lord, the daimyo of our Kishu domain was a senior member of the Tokugawa family. So uh, the domain, by the, the very first shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, uh, created the domain and bestowed it on one of his sons. Um, and there were three branch families of the Tokugawa who had all been given major domains who were also eligible uh, to uh, to to inherit the position of shogun if the direct line failed for any reason. Uh, that happened, I think, twice during Kishu domain, during the life of Kishu domain, that, uh, that the daimyo of Kishu domain actually became shogun, once during Kome's lifetime, in fact. Um, so in that sense, they were very closely allied with the Tokugawa shoguns. Uh, and there was, uh, Wakayama had a large presence in the city of Edo, and there was a a very active coming and going of, uh, of uh, samurai families between Wakayama and Edo. I think something like 2,000 samurai families actually lived in, who were from Wakayama actually lived in Edo, including Koome's husband for a couple of years, um, which unfortunately are missing from the diary. So we don't really learn anything about how he experienced that. Um, and I'd say, uh, uh, you know, another, uh, feature that makes Wakayama more connected than you might expect is its proximity to Kyoto. So that's a you know a couple of days walk away from Wakayama, uh, relatively close. There was a, a lot of interaction between the two cities, and although Kyoto was more a cultural center through much of the Tokugawa period, during that this crucial era of the 1860s, this revolutionary period. Kyoto really became the center of political activism. Uh, and so Koome's proximity to Kyoto uh, and the actually the involvement of uh, Wakayama samurai in some of the 
military and other activities that were going on in Kyoto uh, gave her a very direct experience of um, uh, of these dramatic events. Um, and, and there was even one other factor, I think, that perhaps made Wakayama feel perhaps much more central than its location might suggest. And that is that it had a very extensive coastline, which in many ways sort of guarded the some of the main geographic centers of Western Japan. So, you know, if, uh, if you uh, could penetrate the, this area, so it's, you know, Wakayama itself is based right on the edge of the inland sea. Um, and if you could command that, that coastline, then you also probably had quite easy access to Osaka uh, and potentially Kyoto. So especially when uh, the threat from foreign adversaries became very real in the 1850s, Wakayama, despite its you know, distance from Edo, was considered a pretty important strategic location as well. Sorry, that was a long answer to your question. Um, well, I mean, we, we talk about these, these samurai families, um, you know, uh, I think both generally, but also, I guess, in the specific case of, of, of Koome's family. Um, I was trying to think of like, what, what would be like a modern equivalent to, I guess, the, the, the class status of, of, of these families. Um, I was making a lot of my brain was going to like graduate students or something, you know, a lot of cultural status, but but, you know, or like the people that work in like publishing houses in New York or something. Um, but uh, but I guess, you know, so, so you know, the, the samurai families had high status where maybe not did not maybe have a great amount of net worth, but had a very strong cultural status. Um, but how did families like Koome's like how did they, I guess, quote unquote, earn a living? What was the household economy like? Yeah, well, great question. It's not not an easy question to answer, um, you know, because of the complexity of samurai society. So, you know, throughout Japan, we're looking at maybe 6% of the Japanese population. Uh, and, you know, I think given the, um, the, the clear privileges that these people had, uh, it, I, you know, I think it, it's perfectly reasonable to call them an aristocracy of sorts. And yet within that aristocracy, there was a huge variety of income and status. Uh, so, you know, the, at the top end of the scale, there were actually many samurai who were very powerful politically and also very wealthy, uh, you know, really traditional aristocrats, I guess. Um, at the bottom end, there were people below the level of Kogome and her family who really had extremely marginal incomes, maybe nothing guaranteed at all, in fact, and just what they could earn, uh, who had the status of samurai, but really none of, effectively none of the privileges and who often just blended into the, the main population through marriage and and, uh, and so on. Um, so it, it was a, a much, le although, you know, in theory, Japan, Japanese society was rather rigidly divided. Um, it was a, a much more varied and porous kind of a, a situation than you, you might expect. Um, so looking more closely at Koume's family, uh, and I think they were typical of the sort of middle ranks of samurai families, uh, both in Wakayama and beyond. Their core living, if you like, came from a hereditary stipend uh, that was given to them by virtue of their status as retainers of, the, of their own uh, daimyo. Um, so in the case of Kome's family, that was equivalent to about 20 koku. It's very hard to, you know, to judge what that would be worth in modern terms. I mean, um, 
one koku was I think 180 kilograms of rice. Uh, I think today a kilo of rice costs about maybe $10. So, you know, so 20 koku might be equivalent to about 20 or $30,000 perhaps, um, which would be a pretty marginal income in the United States. And perhaps the, the graduate student analogy is not so inappropriate there. Um, but, uh, and, and, and I would also add that because of the financial mismanagement of many domains, including Wakayama, uh, most samurai families would not pay their stipends in full. In, in Koume's case, it was usually, they only ended up getting between a third and a half of that. So they actually had even less than that might indicate. Um, on top of that, um, in Koume's family's case, they had official positions as teachers in the domain school, and that came with some supplemental salary, depending on how senior they were in the school hierarchy. So um, at the beginning of the diary, when Koume and her husband are in their 30s, uh, they are living on a very marginal income, so uh, uh, including everything, maybe 20 koku. Um, and um, they were, really were stumbling from one financial exigency to the next. So, you know, most months they didn't have enough cash to make ends meet. And Koome, who seems to have been mostly in charge of managing the day-to-day -day finances in her family, she really uh, had, to, had to, you know, make do with a lot of scrimping and saving. And even then she usually ended up pawning family uh, valuable family items, particularly clothing. Uh, so, you know, she uh, she was constantly going, she, as a samurai woman, she really didn't, it was, it was below her status, I guess, to do this in person. So she would employ these female intermediaries to, uh, to go to the, the pawn, the pawn shop. So actually their local pawn shop was um, known as the, um, the Iseya, the house of Isei, Isei being one of the, it was actually in the Wakayama Peninsula, but it's one of the main um, sacred uh, sites for one of, the, one of the great shrines of Japan is in Isei. So she used to call, when she would send her servant to go and pawn goods, she would, she would to call it uh, sending them on the Isei pilgrimage. And that happened just about every every month during the early years of the diary. Later on, the salary increased uh, and to somewhere around uh, 50 koku, so you know, more than double, and that helped a lot. Um, but even that really wasn't enough for them to, you know, to get by. So they also uh, did a variety of activities. And I think this was very common with samurai families throughout Japan, uh, some forms of private enterprise, you know, so whatever it might be, you know, for very low ranking families, it was usually some kind of uh, hand production, um, you know, sort of sewing or something like that. Uh, for uh, Kolome's family, because they were well educated, they, they, uh, they added to their income through private teaching activities. Uh, and also Kolome herself was, um, was a, a highly trained artist and was quite well known uh, as a female artist in, in Wakayama. Uh, it was a, a tricky uh, financial proposition because um, many of the people that, that acquired her art in one form or another uh, considered it sort of a little dirty to make to do financial transactions, I guess, and Kome wasn't really able to ask for cash. 
So a lot of the compensation, not just for the for her own art, but actually for many of the sort of extra activities that they did uh, were paid in kind in one form or another. So non-cash income was also an extremely important part of the family economy. Um, and one of the very important functions of Koame's diary, I think, was to sort of keep track of this very complex uh, sort of system of non-cash support mm -hmm. coming from various sources to make sure that they, I guess, that they got uh, rewarded for service they did to others, but also to make sure that they returned favors uh, if people helped them out sometimes. Um, and uh, yeah, and so um, it's a complicated picture. Um, uh, uh, and I think, you know, privilege is relative. I don't think Kome's family ever went hungry, for example, uh, whereas many of their relatives and, and uh, poorer members of the local community did. Um, but um, but they, they didn't necessarily have it easy. Yeah, local merchant families, for example, often were much wealthier. Mm. Um, Kome also, I think, uh, writes a lot about, you say news, but it's seems more like rumors that's filtered through many, many people, sometimes quite um, uh, embellished, I think, stories about what she's hearing in other, what's going on in other cities, particularly about foreigners. Um, she has very strong views on foreigners, despite, I think, never actually meeting any of them. Um, I mean, I mean, you, you talk about kind of, kind of like how information flows from like the political centers to these more remote areas. Um, you know, I guess how much I guess how much news did travel back and forth and, you know, were Koome's, one could say, stereotypical views of foreigners, like were they were they common to people at the time? Yeah, so um, so she did seem to have very strong views on foreigners, um, starting with the arrival uh, in 1853 of the, the, the Perry expedition. Um, uh, the, the news so, uh, you know, you actually, your question, I guess, had two parts, one about the flow of news and information and the other about the foreigners. So I, I'll, I'll try and answer both, yeah. So starting with the foreigners, yeah. So news did reach Cormac very quickly, you know, as quickly as the road would allow uh, of this, uh, these, this foreign incursion. Um, and the news that she received was extremely alarmist. I mean, actually way exaggerated. So, you know, in fact, there were, I think, six ships in Perry's fleet, but she wrote about uh, 50 ships uh, uh, with uh, with as many as 3,000 people on each ship, you know, and uh, she wrote about not, not, not only American ships, but there were also rumors that there was a huge fleet of British ships on the way. Um, and the, the actually the, uh, the effect on Wakayama itself was like electrifying. I mean, there was a, a very, very strong sense of we've got to do something, partly to defend their enormous coastline, uh, but also because they were, you know, a key, uh, I guess, component in the overall sort of national, very, I mean, unfortunately, Japan had a very loosely organized national defense system because of the independence of many of these domains, but uh, Wakayama was considered a pretty key part of it. So uh, the entire domain, uh, you know, militarized very quickly. Even Kome's 
quite, you know, elderly, scholarly family, like her husband was probably in his 60s by this time, had to run out and buy armor. And, uh, you know, her son had to start doing military training with gunnery and so on. So so the foreigners were, you know, seen as a military threat threat in the very beginning. Uh, and then, um, uh, you know, as time went on, people got used to the idea of foreigners a little bit more. These trade treaties were signed and foreigners even started showing up, uh, you know, in and around, not in the city of Yokopua, Fuakayama, but uh, off the coastline. Um, and it was then that Koome began expressing very xenophobic views, yeah, uh, about how, uh, how, how greedy, how avaricious, how... Uh, disgusting uh how violent the foreigners were um and she would relay these stories that were clearly like you know again sort of rumor based that were circulating some of them actually were one or two of them were, were, were clearly you know accurate local news for example there was one occasion when a, a foreign ship docked uh in a port near to wakayama uh, and a, a local girl, a 14-year-old girl, disappeared uh, onto the ship uh, and was, you know, released several days later, clearly in much worse shape than she than when she had gone onto the ship. And uh, and there were also reports of, of some confrontations uh, with drunken sailors attacking local farmers and so on. So that was actual news and was was very pretty negative. I mean, and, and of course, there are lots of well-documented accounts of this kind of behavior by foreigners in Japan at this time. Um, but they were also, oh, yeah, 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 much yeah, more... It, it, I think it is important to note that the foreigner, yeah, foreigners did not treat Japan very well during this period of time. Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the fears turned out to be very well justified, I think, yeah. Um, but, um, um, uh, and of course, this was also one of the, you know, one of the reasons why the Japanese uh, uh, uh elite throughout the country, you know, began looking very strongly for ways to strengthen the country. Uh, and, and many believe that the only way to do that was to over, overthrow the shogunate and establish a strong central government centered on the emperor. So it had very, very powerful knock-on effects on the domestic political system also. Uh, but anyway, just to go back and give you like one or two examples of the kind of crazy rumors that were circulating, uh, you know, many of which just, just sort of focused on the alienness and the kind of revoltingness of foreign practices. You know, she wrote about one foreigner who had um, purchased a performing monkey from a local entertainer, you know, a sort of traveling entertainer. Um, and, uh, uh, and, but instead of using the, the monk, this highly trained monkey to do tricks and so on, he had his Chinese servant boil it up uh, and then decapitated it and ate, ate its brains out of the uh, out of the top of the head, um, and um, you know that kind of rumor was circulating. Um, also, many rumors about um, the greed and avarice of the foreigners. Um, so I, you know, some of them were pretty long, clearly, you know, sort of apocryphal stories but that's the sort of examples of the xenophobia there's no actual evidence from the diary that Kome herself ever met a foreigner mm. um, so maybe I can go back to your first question though about or, or your introduction to your question about the circulation of news and information because I do think that's a very interesting aspect uh, to Kome's life and diary um, and um, so, you know, the fact that she kept a diary, of course, meant that she, you know, she was 
recording information on a daily basis. Uh, and the diary gives a really interesting insight into the way this information was circulating. So, you know, there were no newspapers as such in uh, Tokugawa era Japan. There, there were a lot of printed news sheets of one kind or another, most of them underground, some of them very scurrilous, most of them extremely sensationalist. Um, and Koome was clearly consuming those on a daily basis. So I don't know whether she, she bought them herself or whether they were just circulating from family to family, but she was often transcribed sections of these, these broadsheets. Um, most of what they contained was, as I say, sensationalist, often, often based on rumor uh, rather than fact. Uh, there was very little attention to what we might call journalistic standards, I guess. Um, and because they were underground, you know, the, the government uh, highly disapproved of this kind of thing. Um, there were really no censorship or rules that were able to control them very effectively. Um, many of them also contained um, satirical verses, you know, often severely criticizing uh, local and national politicians. Um, and Komei loved all this stuff. I mean, she often reported gleefully on the, um, on the scurrilous verses that were circulating about, about the, the, uh, the local, the politicians, you know, whether it's national or local. Um, and it, it also appears as though this, this, this sort of network of printed and also I think probably verbal rumor mongering um, was circulating both on a national and a local level. So it appears as though Kome was both reading nationally circulating broadsheets, but also very local ones about extremely, you know, focusing on very local events. So there was a obviously a, an enormously vibrant media culture, if you like, going on that Kome was very much plugged into. Um, and um, so okay, if, I, if you don't mind me just expanding on this just a little bit more. So you might ask, well, why was Koume keeping this diary and what was she really doing with her life? You know, like what, 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 what place did the diary have in her day to daily life? And um, that's also, I found that very, very interesting to think about. So, you know, she was a, essentially what we might today call a housewife, although I think that's, you know, a very, probably not a very accurate way to look at Tokugawa family life. Uh, perhaps household manager would be a more accurate description. Um, she, uh, you know, her husband went out to work most days, um, often stayed out late drinking with colleagues and so on. Koome tended to stay home, like probably if her husband went out 20 days in a month, Koome might go out on expeditions three or four days. A lot of the time she, she was home. Um, she was, um, of course, she had, she had one child, so she was responsible for his upbringing. There was also a household staff that she was responsible for. So, you know, they had usually one or two maids uh, helping out in the house, sometimes live in, sometimes coming every day. They had uh, helpers to, you know, work in the garden, uh, to uh, help them with little construction projects around the house uh, and other things. Uh, whenever her husband went out on official business, he had to be accompanied by a, uh, a retainer of some sort. That was sort of the, what the protocol demanded. So they, they couldn't afford to actually hire a full-time retainer. So they would sort of 
hire people by the day to help out with that. So she was sort of responsible for all that, those aspects of management of the family. Um, she was also responsible for managing the family's finances, uh, you know, at least on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and that included uh, food, you know, managing the, 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 the food and making sure there was enough of it and, and so on. Uh, so she did keep busy with the sort of typical job, I guess, of a samurai wife, sort of household manager type. But um, but she um, <clears throat> she also, um, you know, I think uh, because she was herself an artist and because she came from this well-educated family and was interested in scholarly pursuits, she reserved more of her time for what you might call cultural activities. And I guess that's where the diary seems to fit in. And her diary is a very extensive document. So it, it really covers a variety of aspects of her day-to-day -day life. So it, for example, it records um, visitors to the house on, a, uh, on each day. Uh, it'll talk about uh, business that they may have discussed with either Kome or with her husband. It'll record transactions of various kinds, financial or, or you know, gift exchanges, that kind of thing. Um, and then it usually has, you know, a pretty extensive section on news or information that Koome received during the day. And that information came from various sources. So some of it was from these kind of circulating newsletters and broadsheets. A lot of it was from sort of just reported by uh, family friends and relatives who visited, who just were passing on these, these uh, news or rumors, some of it local, some of it national. Um, and um, sometimes they also received letters from uh, friends living in Edo or Kyoto that also added to the information flow. There was a constant stream of visitors into the house. Uh, uh, and so that also helped with this flow of information. So the diary seems to have been a sort of central information resource for the family. It not only recorded Koume's own activities, but it also wrote, she tried to keep track of everything that the men in her family were doing as well. So her husband, you know, if he went off to work, she would write about what he had done at work. So it clearly seems to also indicate that her husband and her must have spent significant time each day going over these details together so that she could then keep this family record. This is actually really unusual for a woman mm -hmm. to be keeping a kind of a family journal of this kind. Um, I, uh, you know, more commonly women who did keep diaries would, you know, they would be more like literary documents where they would write poetry or, you know, talk about elegant things they had done. But, and Komi did sometimes include poetry in her diary, but really it's more like a business document. A lot of it is about the, the news and important information that might affect her family uh, or that affected the society more broadly. Um, yeah, so the information economy of this family, I think, gives some interesting insights, actually, into the, the general circulation of news and information throughout Japan during this time. They were, they were considering how, how much rumor was circulating. I think they were actually very well informed about what was going on in the country, um, even though things, you know, like news tended to start with wild rumors, it often settled down into much more accurate accounts. Often the, the local government itself, like the government of Daimyo would also chip in with you know, more accurate information. Although I have to say that the 
their own government also sometimes was a big spreader of, of fake news when it was mm. not in its interest to have accurate information circulating. Um, long answer to your question, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, let's let's move forward in time now. Um, you know, to the to post post Meiji Restoration, um, the Shogun is overthrown. Um, there's a new system in place. There are pretty large reforms to um, to the samurai system. How does the Meiji Restoration change uh, Koome's the circumstances of the circumstances of Koome and her family? Yeah, great question. And one of the, again, one of the very interesting things about this diary is the insight that this gives into how a sort of ordinary lower ranking samurai family managed this very radical transition. So um, the Meiji Restoration was actually, you know, pretty devastating for samurai families. So the, um, the, it very quickly became clear to the new government that they could not afford to keep paying the hereditary stipends of samurai throughout the nation, the new nation of Japan. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, it would have completely drained their finances. So uh, after a year or two, they started introducing policies that drastically limited the, um, the privileges of the samurai, particularly financial, but also social privilege. Um, so they, um, they started by commuting the uh, the income uh, to um, to uh, um, there were actually several steps, but ultimately, it, what it amounted to was that the government, instead of paying an annual salary, just um, gave a government IOU to the samurai, like a, a bond, essentially, uh, and. Uh, with the inflation that came uh, in the 1870s, those bonds rapidly became worth next to nothing. Mm -hmm. So um, Koome's family uh, essentially lost its uh, hereditary income and the status of the samurai class. So in fact, all of the class system was officially abolished at the time of the 1870s also. Uh, so, so they really lost all of their privileges. In addition, since the domain itself was abolished in the early 1870s, the domain school also closed down. So the, the institution that had employed four generations of Kome's family also closed down. Uh, so Kome's son, who was by this time the family head, her husband had passed away, uh, lost his job uh, and had to make do. I think it was very challenging for them. That although Kome only had one son, he had, I think, six children, uh, so a pretty large family to take care of, uh, including two uh, daughters who were marriageable age that you know needed expensive weddings and dowries and so on. So um, they had a, a lot of challenges to deal with. And um, so how did they deal with those challenges? Uh, one thing, unfortunately, the, the diary is missing for the years 1868 to 1875. So we, we, this is some very crucial parts of this period. Yes. We, we really can't find out much about what happened. But when it takes up again, um, they seem to own several rental properties that they somehow picked up during the course of that restoration period. Uh, so they gave a somewhat steady income to the family, although not 
nearly as much as as you would expect from you know i think they all together had maybe 70 individuals living in their rental houses um that sounds like wealth but it really was much more marginal than you might think um and uh and then um in 1876 uh Koume's son who was the head of the family as i mentioned uh adjusted to the changing circumstances. So compulsory education had been introduced by the new government. Uh, every town and village had to open its own elementary schools. Uh, and uh, although he had been effectively like a university professor in this previous system, you know, the domain school was probably equivalent to a you know, higher educational institution, um, he now found himself as a, a teacher in a in an elementary school uh, so uh, and and even that he it seems to have been a very insecure I mean he, he actually changed jobs three or four times during the um, the late 1870s when the diary picks up again uh, before finally I think uh, opening his own private academy we don't get a whole lot of insight because the diary doesn't talk so much about the details but it seems like he was basically taking in private students. His, one of his problems was that he, he and all of the teachers in this domain school essentially taught classical Chinese education. Mm -hmm. And the new educational system, you know, really wanted to prioritize, you know, more scientific knowledge and European style education that he was not really equipped to deliver. So that was also a, a big challenge for him. So I think he ended up taking private students who still wanted that sort of Chinese education, which still had a lot of prestige, I guess, for wealthier families. Um, meanwhile, uh, Kome, I think, became a much more active participant in the family's household economy through her art during the Meiji period. So, you know, it seems as though she was painting actively in the pre-Meiji period, but she was she also had all these other responsibilities as household manager. By the 1870s, her daughter-in-law had taken over a lot of those responsibilities. So Kome had a lot more time to paint, but I think the family also actually needed the income and she seems to have become much more like a commercial artist in the post Meiji restoration era. So whereas previously she was mostly doing these sort of cultural artifacts for circulation among the samurai elite, in the post-restoration period, she was painting um, often for the merchant classes. Like for example, she would paint uh, a friend of family who seems to have been a friend of theirs bought a rickshaw, uh, which they were gonna operate as a kind of local taxi service. Um, and she she painted it for them, you know, she decorated it for them. Um, and uh, she painted, you know, the entranceways to local businesses and that kind of thing. Um, well, she worked on designs for handicrafts uh, with local craftspeople. So she seems to be much more involved in the, the sort of commercial economy and expected to be paid in cash for that kind of activity. I don't think she ever was very well paid. And I think even if you put all of these income sources together, the, the rental properties, the um, uh, the teaching activities of, of the son and Kome's art, it probably still came out to a little less than they were getting in their more secure position uh, during the Tokugawa period. So it was definitely challenging. But then when you look at what happened to other members of the samurai class, you realize that 
these people were doing okay. You know, like many samurai families really fell into dire poverty, uh, especially ones who came from these lower ranks of society. Uh, so they did manage to avoid that. Yeah, it seemed, uh, it seemed just, like they were able to pivot to... They, I mean, I think it was really challenging, but I mm -hmm. do think that ultimately they did. And I was lucky to be able to meet... Um, one or two descendants of the family in Wakayama. So I think mm. the, the four times great granddaughter of Kome still lives in uh, Wakayama. And it seems as though uh, even down to this generation, the sort of scholarly tradition has has continued in the family. Uh, they, you know, clearly mem members of the educated middle class. Yeah, even even to this day. Well, that's, well, uh, that, that's a good subject. My question was like they're, Koome's diary, I think you note, has a little bit of a of a fan club in in today's Wakayama. Can, can, how how is the diary seen today? Yeah, so um, there is indeed a wonderful group of local historians who who were for me just a, a joy to get to know. Mostly, you know, not young people. Um, who, um, you know, for whatever reason have become uh, enthralled with this diary as a piece of local history. Uh, beyond Wakayama, honestly, Kome's diary is not very well known uh, and her story is not well known. So there's only one other book that I'm aware of that has been published about her. Um, uh, and that was published by a, a local historian, a member of this, of this society. Um, and um, for me, it was a really helpful resource, but I don't think it's circulating wild, widely. Uh, among scholars, Kome is somewhat known. I mean, she's one of the rather few known female artists from this period. But she, again, she's you know considered a very minor one, I think, today. Um, and uh, so um, I would I would say that she is somebody who is squarely in what I call think of as my wheelhouse, which is, you know, finding people who really, you know, have, have become forgotten by history, uh, mostly because they they didn't, they never had a strong voice and trying to, to sort of bring them back to life and try and understand how, how history was, how these dramatic events in Japanese history was really understood and experienced by, uh, relatively powerless voiceless people uh and you know i'm when they did have choices i'm fascinated by the choices that that they made um but i would also add that um although you know i don't think that these local historians uh, they actually have a little little society called the uh, the society for the enjoyment of Kome's diary, um, which I was uh, a very keen member of until COVID hit in uh, in early 2020, when their activities unfortunately came to a, a stop. Um, but um, they they themselves, I think, are, are a very interesting sort of uh, case study, perhaps in the um, the stability and ultimately the stability and continuity in Wakayama society, even in spite of enormous social transformations uh, that have taken place over the last 150 years. Um, these are people I think that Kome would easily have recognized. You know, they are often, many of them are housewives of one kind or another. Uh, they are um, extremely well-educated, highly cultured, uh, um, and, uh, and very, very, you know, well-versed in the, the same kinds of uh, 
uh, cultural traditions that Kaume herself was trained in. Um, and, uh, you know, Kome, uh, Wakayama is a, a pretty conservative society. Uh, it's had a lot of continuity, despite the fact that, um, unfortunately, the city was more or less completely destroyed uh, by American bombing in, in World War II. So, you know, very little of the physical geography of the original town has survived. And yet the it's a tribute, I think, to the uh, amazing resilience of Japanese social structures that how much of the society that I saw in this local group of local historians, how, how, how much seems to resonate with the society that Kome herself lived in. You know, maybe I, I want to end by end by looking at kind of this 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 class of, of history books. Um, that looks at the lives of ordinary people. I mean, you 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 mention um, in your book, I think, and in, in praising your book, um, "Stranger in the Shogun City" by Amy Stanley, who was in fact one of the very first interviews I did on this podcast <laughs> several oh. years ago. Um, and and so, but but in your view, what do we gain by by looking at ordinary people who, you know, you know, didn't have a lot of like they, they aren't, you know, the great men of history that, that like change the directory of countries and in societies. Um, but you still learn a lot about about what's going on, like on the ground. I mean, what what, what do you think is, is the value of of looking at these primary source documents in depth? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I think this has been a sort of a I've had a sense of mission about this for the last 20 years or so. Um, and I think I think part of it is I, I'm. Uh, I'm not quite sure what what adjective to use for it. Actually, I mean it's it's not just a, a, uh, a sort of scientific scholarly interest, but also to some extent an emotional and even spiritual one. I mean, I feel that the um, that you know most of history was lived by people like Kome, like you know people who have just just disappeared for the most part, um, and. I, I think that the act of trying to, to you know, bring the, one of these lives back to, back to sort of three dimensions and to sh show that these were real people who were suffering, who were experiencing joy, who were, you know, leading ordinary lives, but also living through important historical events is really important just in and of itself, regardless of mm -hmm. what we might learn about history as such. Um, so that's sort of one answer. But I also do think that these life stories can offer very significant insights. So I, I mean, I, I think perhaps broadly, this kind of history fits into the category perhaps of micro history, although, you know, it's like it's one people often ask, well, is this really biography, you know, when it's not of somebody famous? Um, uh, is it micro history? Um, I, I, probably microhistory comes closest. And I think that the goal of this kind of history is to, um, to paint a vivid portrait of something very local, but at the same time to connect it uh, to the larger trends and larger events that, uh, you know, that the more uh, mainstream historians are, are, are writing about. Um, and in doing so, you do get a very different point of view. Um, you know, uh, with a point of view that might challenge uh, a more sort of dominant narrative about, for, for example, Japanese ideology. So just to give one example, um, 
I wrote a biography of a a, a, a village a villager uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and he was one of the leaders in his village, small village in Kanagawa prefecture. Um, and he had to lead his village. He was actually mayor of the village um, during the Russo-Japanese war. And I think that there's a kind of a broader narrative about the, um, the effectiveness of the emperor-centered ideology in Japan, that there seems to be, have been, a, a, you know, for many years, a perception that, uh, that the Japanese government was somehow extraordinarily successful in generating passionate and even fanatic devotion to the emperor among the population to the point that they were happy to go off, you know, and fight in wars, you know, for the sake of the emperor and so on. And uh, I mean, you know, to some extent, I guess it's always been clear that there's a bit of propaganda in this, but it was really interesting to me to see from a very close up point of view, how this village actually interacted with the, with the war. Um, and it became very clear to me that absolutely everything they did was not out of volunteerism, but out of coercion. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 people don't necessarily respond to national ideological projects. They would tend to respond to what they see as being their own best interests and what, how they can increase the comfort in their own lives. I, that seems to be pretty universal throughout this, this, these projects that I have done of this type. Uh, and so I think it's important, you know, as a kind of counterbalance to broader, more sweeping sort of national narratives to show in examples of coercion or resistance that sometimes you can see in these local stories. Often people like Koome lived a life where they had very few choices about, you know, how to respond to historical events. They were caught up in them. They were pretty powerless. But I think it's really interesting to look at the choices they make when they do have such a choice. Um, and, you know, looking at Koume's own life, I think we can learn from this that um, she was, you know, swept up, I think, in... Um, so, you know, one of the things I think that was a, a, a significant consequence of the troubles with foreigners in the 1850s and 60s is that many Japanese who... Um, uh, you know, who, who might have grown up having more local loyalties and uh, found themselves becoming quite patriotic. And I think Kome, in that sense, she probably, you know, is, is pretty closely conforms to that, that particular narrative. So she did become much more aware of Japanese-ness and uh, what it meant to, you know, to resist foreigners and so on. She was quite patriotic in that sense. On the other hand, you know, the emperor, for example, I don't think she really had any sense of like why the emperor should be important to her. That's not something that appears anywhere in the diary. Um, and every uh, struggle that they were involved in, starting with the Meiji Restoration and continuing through the Satsuma Rebellion, she was highly critical of the politicians, regardless of loyalty. She just thought that they were, you know, uh, deceiving the people very often. So she definitely had her own take on this stuff. Um, and let me just say one more thing actually about this practice of writing these uh, people's lives. So one thing that was really interesting to me about this project was that, you know, as you mentioned, this is the fourth Japanese person that I have written about um, uh, using this kind of method. 
for the mo most of the time, I have felt that like there are very few people doing this kind of history when it comes to Japanese history, at least. And to tell you the truth, I felt like a little out on a limb doing this kind of work. You know, a lot of my colleagues was like, you know, why are you doing this? And like, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to like, it doesn't seem to jive very much with the big, you know, themes of imperialism, colonialism, you know, race, gender, and so on that people are so interested in these days. Um, or if it does, it's only in very marginal sorts of, or very small ways. Um, it, but I was really interested when it came to writing a diary of a Tokugawa era woman, how mainstream this kind of writing is in this particular field. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that if you want to do women's history, you kind of don't have a lot of choices because they're not in the mainstream archives. You really have to look for collections of letters or diaries and so on. Um, and that's why, including Amy Stanley's wonderful book, there are really quite a lot of really interesting biographies of, uh, of women in the late Tokugawa period. I, I found myself in rather intimidatingly good company during this process. Uh, and I actually, you know, found for that reason it was a, a very challenging project for me because I'm not really a, like a, a historian of women's history or of Tokugawa era history or of art history for that matter um, and I realized that I had to do a, uh, you know to really do a lot of work to kind of catch up with uh, with where these these pioneers of uh, women's history have taken us so uh, that was humbling but also you know very inspiring. Well. I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Simon Partner, author of Kuome's World, The Life and Work of a Samurai Woman Before and After the Meiji Restoration. Simon, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all of your work. And uh, what do you think the next project might be? Is there another ordinary Japanese person that you um, may want to profile? Yeah, so, well, the answer to the first question is um, all of the books are still in print. Uh, two, the first two were published by the University of California, the most recent two by Columbia University Press. Uh, I think you can find them on, on Amazon. Uh, I'm, to tell you the truth, I'm not totally clear about the ebook situation for any of them. I think mm -hmm. most of them are available on in some kind of ebook format also. Um, and uh, But anyway, yeah, uh, you know, or go to your library and, and ask um, that they, they are still available. Um, and um, as for what I'm going to do next, I have been taking some time to think about that. You know, I, as I mentioned, I, I, felt, I felt a little out on a limb for a lot of my career doing this kind of work. And I've been wondering if I should move on and try something else. Uh, but I, I think it's a good opportunity for me to take a little bit of time and think that through. So the answer is actually, I don't know, uh, but thanks for asking. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow them on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. Support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nicholas. I really appreciate the opportunity.